Moto America fans, it's time for another episode of Off Track with Carruthers and Bice. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you may even learn something from this unlikely pair and their special guest. The mic is yours, Paul and Sean. Hello, Moto America fans, and welcome to this latest edition of Off Track with Carruthers and Bice. Uh, we are back on audio only for this week, but we've got a great guest who uh, we've uh, wanted to get on for a while. We'll talk to, talk about that in a minute, but um, we're fresh from a couple of days away from Road America, and it was a it was a great round for us up there. We had great weather, a record-setting crowd, and some amazing racing. Um, Paul, we always say when we get to the Road America round, it's 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 just a, a great feeling that everybody has when we're there and after for a little while. Um, I, I know you agree. Yeah, it, this one was, I mean, they seem to just be getting better every year. And even when we started there, it was, you know, it was pretty decent just because I think everyone knows Road America. Everyone who goes to Road America was looking forward to it. And it, it's just continued to grow until this year was just like, I mean, it was crazy. I mean, you kind of you kind of have to stop yourself and look around every once in a while just to realize how many people were actually there. And uh, you know, the weather cooperated. It was it was actually just about perfect weather. I mean, it was nice and sunny, but it wasn't too hot. And uh, the races went off without a hitch. I mean, we we barely had any red flags. And uh, no, it was it was it was a wonderful weekend. Yeah, I was going to say I don't even remember a red flag. It was it was really good, and I mean, obviously, we had a couple at uh, Barber there, and we always have one in every round. But um, and we had a lot of racing. My gosh, there was uh, six classes going. Plus, we had Mini Cup on the other track, but it was pretty nonstop both days. But we always say this: once that racing gets going on Saturday and Sunday, those those days go by really quick. It's just one rate after another, but, um, there was a lot of good stuff going on there. I mean, there were some things that we kind of expected and, and it sort of did happen. I mean, it's a horsepower track and for the Medallia Superbike riders, you know, it showed that, that, uh, you know, the, the BMWs and the Ducati really did what we thought they'd do, which was, you know, high speed and good, good, uh, uh, you know, 188, 188, nine mile an hour speeds. So um, that track really yields some amazing speeds uh, on their straightaways. But, you know, it's it's such a cool track. Everybody, everybody that races it always enjoys being there, too. So um, but um, it's good. And I mean, I still don't we we haven't got a clear picture of what's going to happen, if, you know, with Medallia Superbike at all. Um, it's crazy, right? Yeah, and it's I think it's kind of fun and it's it's interesting. It kind of takes us back to the to the to the good old days, as they like to say, with you know, like, oh, is that a Suzuki track or is that a Honda track or a BMW or a Ducati or Yamaha? I mean, of late, it's just like everything's been a Yamaha track and they've dominated, you know. Right. And now we've got these other two brands. I mean, last year Ducati was a factor as well, but this year they you know they've they've won a race with Josh obviously this past weekend and. He closed up a lot in the championship with his two results. So I think it's genuine now that we have these these chats. Like everyone's like, oh man, the BMW is going to struggle at the ridge. Well, we don't know that. But I mean, if you look at it on paper, Road America was a really good track for, for both the Ducati and the BMW. And Yamaha, I mean, they they had more problems than you could shake a stick at. So right. um, who knows on the ridge? I mean, obviously it's hard, you know, they... Honestly, ex with the exception of, I guess, of, of the of Road America, 
I mean, everything seems pretty much like a Yamaha track to me at this point, just because just based on, on recent uh, experience, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's fun. It's, uh, you know, both Cameron Bobier and Jake Gagne had a DNF. Um, actually Cameron came out of it a bit better off. I mean, he, he came in closer. Uh, he leaves, uh, he left Wisconsin closer in the points to Jake than he arrived there. So, um, out of those two, he was the one that gained a little bit, but it could have been a lot more, obviously, if he didn't break down. But then who knows uh, what would happen if, if Jake didn't have issues as well. So, yeah, it was I, I, we go to the ridge next and uh, and find out some some more answers to to still what we have is a lot of questions. Yeah, I had to chuckle on Sunday when we had the press conference and you were you were given kind of the rundown of how things were shaking out. And, you know, Jake was on the podium, which was kind of a little bit of a surprise, given all the difficulties that that team had um, over the weekend. You know, it was it was Yeoman's work for him to get up there and do what he did. But when you told him. Um, and he was leading the championship. He kind of looked at you like, what I am. He really didn't think that he was going to end up in that, that place. So it's interesting how the points go though. So well, his reaction actually made me recheck my math. I know. I know. I was like, that close. it wasn't a point or two either. So I don't know what he was thinking, but I think he probably, you know, when he, he was probably after that race, just like, holy crap, all the stuff that's happened. And, you know, he probably was just a little bit overwhelmed, you know, but um, yeah, it was good to see him back on the podium. Cause I mean, he, he, he's there every, every race unless he has a problem. So they had a rough weekend, but I think they, they probably salvaged as much out of it as they could. And I mean, Cameron Peterson and it, you know, we'll be able to talk to our guest about this a little bit, but I mean, yeah. that was, you know, that's quite the effort to, uh, to race two superbike races with a badly, badly in, injured wrist and i thought going in the fact that he was saying that he was going to race at road america with what i believe is honestly a broken wrist yeah i figured it was at least his left wrist and when i found out it was his right wrist i'm like there's no way but i mean it just goes to show you that these guys are a they're a different breed altogether and he's a tough kid and and it's important for him to to race and to get results so that he can continue doing what he does so yeah. Yeah. And here I am thinking, you know, I talked to Matthew Skoltz about this, that, you know, I, I know road Atlanta is very hard with its downhills and things like that. And I, and, and Barber too, with being tight with a lot of braking zones and everything, I'm thinking, well, actually road America is not so bad because, you know, it's four miles, but in fact, you know, the, the reality is that, and Matthew said this, it's like, no, that track is really, really hard. There's hard, hard braking because of some of the downhills and, you know, you get so much speed going around that track, but you also have some pretty tight turns. So yeah, just to put all, all that weight um, and all that uh, closing speed and, and braking on your, uh, your wrists is crazy, especially on your right hand side where you're also working the, the, the brake too. It's, it's just incredible that um, Cameron was able to do that, but you know, you're right. Let's, um, Let's bring in our guest here so that we can talk about that because uh, the guest that we have is is actually one of his clients is Cam Cam Peterson, um, and it's uh, Ethan Chaplick who owns Southern Pride uh, Coaching. Sorry about that, Ethan. It took me a minute to uh, you know I don't know why in my head I go I think Southern Pride Performance. I don't know why. why I keep... Oh, that's correct. Yeah, it's Southern Pride Performance. <laughs> oh, it is. Okay, yes, sorry. Sir, about you that. were right. Oh, you're good. Yeah, that's right. Southern Pride Performance Coaching. That's what it was. I got the 
performance in their rung. So I want to say this about you, Ethan. This was a few years ago, um, and you can tell us where how how it came you came to be in our paddock, but you know, I would see you well, so you you were working with Hunter Dunham, um, and Hunter had a little setup. Not not a little setup, but a setup beside uh, Westby Racing, and he was kind of an offshoot of that truck, and the team kind of traveled together like there. And that's where I first saw you. You were off to the side, and I could see you working the massage gun, and then I could see you doing these things with um, having these guys, you know, throw and catch balls or touching these lights like almost they're playing um Simon or whatever that game is. So there's a lot of stuff that you were doing and it kind of expanded from there. And, and um, then I wasn't clearly sure. I thought I, I knew that you were working with, I knew you were working with Matthew because I do stuff with him too. But then, you know, the attack team, I thought it was both of them, but for sure it's, it's, it's Cam Peterson. And then we were briefly talking today and you also work with a guy that both Paul and I really like a lot, which is who is Wyatt Ferris. So um, give us kind of a rundown of, really what you do and how you got into our paddock and you know it kind of it's kind of spread from there and, and who you're working with right now that's kind of a lot to bite off but I, i'm sure you can give us the rundown on it yeah i might have to have you remind me on some of the finer points of that question but i'll start with okay. the background I the bunch uh, out, the, out there sorry about that yeah no 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 you're all good <laughs> uh, i just get scatterbrained sometimes thinking about the first part of the question but yeah. i'll try and give the spark notes the quick version of how I got into the paddock. Like you said, I, I started working with Hunter Dunham as a sponsored athlete of my business at the time. And I had no racing background whatsoever. I wasn't even really necessarily a racing fan at the time, funny enough. Um, just worked with him because he was local to my business partner. And 2020, I actually moved from Southern California to Georgia and went to my first race at Road Atlanta. I showed up with my massage gun, just was going to see, hey, how can I help these guys out? Um, it's obviously a very physically demanding thing they're doing out there. And to say that first round got me hooked would be an understatement. I mean, I went full obsession mode after that. Uh, that first round, I ended up helping not only Hunter, but I was also working on Michael Gilbert and Cam Peter or yes, Cam Peterson and Jason Aguilar. Um, so from there, they kind of saw think I'm very grateful to Amy and Tony Dunham because they kind of saw the value there. And, and they asked me if I'd like to go along, along with them for the rest of the season. So I was blessed for that opportunity. And that kind of led to me being in the paddock consistently. And just like you said, slowly building things up and slowly learning from some of the best in the world at racing. Um, you know, fortunate to be around these guys and fortunate that a lot of my closest friends now are guys like Cameron Peterson, Jake Gagne, Matthew Skoltz. Uh, so that really just kind of had that snowball effect of going from just doing the massage work to being a performance coach for these guys and helping handle not only the recovery aspect in the paddock, but also working with them on the mental side of things, making sure that we're progressing there and, and decompressing is a big part of it, obviously. And then on the physical side, managing their workouts, making sure that we are properly periodizing, making sure that they're tapering down to make sure we are operating at hundred percent when race weekend comes around. Um, and then like you mentioned and touched on getting them warmed up before the races and getting the, the brain up to speed, obviously that's a big part of racing. So, uh, that's the very shortened version of how I got into it. It feels like it was a, a roller coaster. And about two years ago, that first business 
went by the wayside, fell apart. And I was hit with almost a crossroads of, all right, do I commit to this and go all in? Or do I stick with the consulting job I was doing at the time to kind of pay the bills a little bit? Um, luckily, I had Jason Aguilar in my ear at that time saying, dude, commit to it. Like You're doing a great thing and you're bringing a lot of value to the sport and you know your stuff. You've proven that over the past few years. So I, I think you should go all in. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful I listened to Jason because this is the most fulfilling thing I could ask for as far as a, a career. That's for sure. Wow. I'll tell you, Ethan, I didn't even know that you worked with their new Jason. That's really cool. I mean, we obviously, you know, think, think a lot of him and still think about him all the time. What a, what a terrific kid he was and an awesome racer as well. That's cool. Yeah, absolutely. I like to say that he waited, he, he passed away on my birthday. So I like to say that was his reminder of, to me, to not play small and to, uh, to live up to my promises to him. So, so let, so let's backtrack a second. So Hunter is from Georgia. You're from Georgia. How, how did, did you know Hunter uh, outside of racing? I did not. So oh. I was living in Southern California at the time when my business partner who lived in Georgia called and she was just like, Hey, there's this kid that comes into my, uh, I think she was doing like cryotherapy and chiropractic assistant there's a kid that comes in, he's a professional racer. I think it would be cool to sponsor him. Um, so that's, that's literally how I got to know him. Started working with him in 2019, just all virtually because I was in California. And then when my fiance and I moved to Georgia, that's when we started working with him in person. And I went to that first race in 2020, that weird shifted schedule season we had. Right. Okay. So that explains that. Cause I knew you went to Cal state Fullerton and I was like, okay, he's from Georgia, but he is, you're not really from Georgia. You moved out there. So I, I get it now. Um, you say your fiance, uh, uh, Paul's going to laugh about this, but because I always have to find this stuff out, Ethan, but are, did you get married or are you going to get married? What's going on? Yeah, that's, uh, it's a work in progress. You know, weddings are expensive. So just trying to figure out how to, uh, how to scale the business up and get that ball rolling before we uh, commit to a wedding. But when I, when we have it, it's going to be a fun one. My groomsmen are guys like Campy and Matthew and Wyatt and Michael Gilbert, Teague Hobbs, Ezra Bobier. So it's going to be a fun one. Yeah. And Teague Hobbs. I mean, it's cool for him this year. I mean, now that he's with, you know, Vision Wheel M4X star Suzuki, it's, uh, you know, we've, we've wanted good things for him for a while. And, you know, I, for sure, I feel that way because he, he's from, New Hampshire where I lived for a while. So I really like him. I'm glad he's gotten this opportunity. And I mean, he's had a few little bumps along the way this year, but I mean, he's actually had some pretty good results so far. Um, you know, talk, I, I guess before we get into talking about Cam and maybe Matthew, Teague is somebody, you know, let's talk about him just a little bit because, you know, it's the pressure is on all these guys, but I'm sure T's got feeling the pressure now that he's on, on this big team that's got such a legacy. So um, wh what do you talk to him about with that, with that whole thing? Honestly, a lot of it's just compartmentalizing and, and keeping perspective. Uh, last season was a very difficult season for him and that Aprilia, the Robum engineering team, they just, it seemed like they were snake bitten, kind of like we've seen attack snake bitten at the beginning of this season. And it was always just uncontrollable things that were going wrong. So having some perspective heading into this season and having this opportunity, we've just really focused on taking that step back and focusing on the things he can directly control. 
We can't control what his teammate with more experience on that bike is going to be doing. We can't control the random mechanicals that happen in racing. There's so many things in racing that we cannot control. So it's important to be very disciplined and very diligent with redirecting to those things we can control and what we can focus on and how we can just be pushing the needle week by week by week to get better. And I think full credit to him, he's done a great job of compartmentalizing and separating himself from the pressure and from the expectations. And it seems like last season honestly helped because he's in a place where he's just having fun racing again. Last year was just such a, such a grind and such a gauntlet that he's definitely seems like he's in a better spot right now. Good. That's good to hear. So Ethan, prior to coming to our paddock, did you do anything similar like this with other athletes? Yeah, I worked on just traditional sports. So I worked with, I, I actually played hockey all the way up through college. Uh, I played for Cal State Fullerton, which is a fun, fun experience. And I worked with a lot of hockey athletes, uh, worked with football players, baseball players, basketball players, track athletes, um, and then just general population, you know, weight loss clients and stuff like that. So that's, that's where my background was. And uh, Hunter Dunham was the first racing client I had. And it, it definitely, uh, it got me hooked. It's a fun, it's a fun challenge. And I feel like having a clean slate was almost a benefit. I wasn't going in with any of my own biases. How did these guys compare to those other athletes as far as, you know, what they do and, and, and well, they're all, their injuries are probably more severe, but probably you get smaller injuries that are happen more often, you know, in, in something like hockey, but Overall, how do these guys compare as athletes compared to the other athletes you've worked with? I mean, I think the top level guys in motorsport are just as athletic and just as physically and mentally gifted, if not more than the top guys in other sports. Obviously, it's a different different set of demands, so you can't necessarily just compare them apple to apple. It's, It's just completely different. But the physical demands of what they're doing, I think is often undervalued. It's easy to just look at the sport and say, Hey, the the machine's doing the work. Like they just have to sit on it and cruise around. Like, and the physicality of it. And like you said, the bouncing back from injuries and, and the pressure involved. And then you throw into it how quickly they have to be reacting and how much information they're absorbing. I think that's a part of it that gets overlooked so often is there's so many minute factors and minute details that they have to be picking up on at this highest level to be pushing at the limit and pushing on the ragged edge. And to do all of that while worrying about 20 other guys on track, I mean, it it baffled me. And I think that's part of why I got so hooked on it is because it was such a unique and such a big challenge to look at it from the outsider perspective and, and try and make myself an expert in it. You know, Ethan, I'm sure you know this uh, with, among our riders. It's it's one of these realities of our sport, unfortunately, that um, it's it's kind of a little bit not if you're going to get an injury, but it's kind of when and injuries are fairly common in, in the sport, certain kinds, obviously. But when you ride a motorcycle that fast and fall down, you know, things are going to happen. Um, and and let's talk about Matthew Skoltz a little bit, because um, he's had a couple pretty, pretty big injuries in his career. Um, some recently, I mean, he's had some things. I, I think I remember last year he had something going on with his, uh, shoulder and, and, uh, collarbone and all kinds of stuff. And I knew you got involved in it as well. And, um, my, my thing with that guy, I call him a power ranger because 
the guy is an absolute specimen of fitness and he's even shared with me i don't know if he's he's probably told you this but has he ever told you the dna story about himself it sounds vaguely vaguely familiar well, he says that somehow, I don't know how he knows this or whatever, but you've seen his, I'm sure you've seen his dad. His dad hasn't been over in a little bit, but his dad looks like an, another version of him. I mean, yep. he look a little different. He's smaller, but he's, he's also amazingly fit for a guy that's, you know, I think in his mid sixties, but so Matthew supposedly has a DNA structure that enables him to heal quick. Um, he come, he's able to come back even quicker than some of the other riders. And I think all the riders come back that quickly. I mean, for Cam Peterson to do what he did after getting injured that Monday after Barber and then to come in and be able to race with that injured wrist is just incredible. It's a, it's a, it's a statement of not only fortitude, but being able to kind of hold back the, the, the obvious discomfort, if not just discomfort than, than pain that they experience. And I've seen Matthew do that too. And, you know, it's, he's, he's had things happen to him, but you know, the guy's in um, unbelievable shape and, He's one that he's, from what I understand, he's had a fitness program for a long time. And I know he's, he he does certain things with his nutrition. So when you started working with him, did you, did you review what he was doing? And was there anything that you kind of did a little bit differently for him? Or did you say, yeah, you're doing the right things. And let's talk about kind of what's, what, what's in your mind, you know, how, how you approach races. How do you work with him? So he definitely had his own program going for a good while. And it was more so just a manner of, you know, I don't, I don't want to come in and be like, Hey, I'm, you know, Mr. Know-it-all. I'm going to step on your program and make you change everything. It, it was, especially with Matthew, I wanted to get to know him and see where he's coming from and figure out what worked with him. And I feel like there's also a comfort aspect of this is what he's been doing. So it's, it's more a matter of making small tweaks. And that's, that's what we did. He was training a lot like a bodybuilder style type of training. And so we've just slowly, and there's, there's stuff he was doing beforehand as well that really helped on the racing side. Like he's doing boxing and uh, mixed martial arts and stuff like that, which I'm huge proponents of those for racers, minus maybe the impact side, aggravating injuries, but that's a, that's a conversation for another time. Um, so we just made small tweaks to how he was trained, how he was training and kind of had that gradual change to his program that kind of was a mix between what he was already doing and and what I had my athletes doing. And to be fair, like I learned a lot from looking at his program. I don't want to just go into it and assume that I know what's best because these guys have been doing it for a while. And there's probably things that I missed. And there were things that I missed in my own programs that I had at the time. So honestly, I learned a lot from him and vice versa. I like to think that he's learned a fair bit from me and, and kind of found that middle ground that really helped with some of the issues he was struggling with. Um, you mentioned his shoulder and that's kind of been a nagging injury and it was just caused by dysfunction due to how his muscles were balanced. And we kind of got that right. Um, but yeah, uh, long story short, just small tweaks to his program and small gradual tweaks that have led to it being quite a bit different than it was. So let's talk about some of this other things I've seen these riders and I, again, it's Matthew, but, um, I've seen Cam do this too. So you have you do some kind of an exercise by bouncing b these balls, and you also have these lights that they tapped. It almost looks like they're playing that old game Simon Says or whatever that was called. Can you can you re uh, without revealing too much, tell us what's going on there? Oh, there's no secrets there. I mean, uh, so we honestly, it's mostly with Cam P at this point. Um, 
So we've got what we call the Hiko stick. That's like the three-sided stick with different colors that I'll toss up in the air. And what we're doing there is I'm just throwing throwing it up and calling out a color and he's got to alternate hands grabbing that color. It gets the brain hemispheres communicating with one another so that he's getting up to speed and operating at that full mental potential. And then it's also getting his eyes used to something coming at him quickly. Uh, after that, we'll follow it up with the the blaze pods, the little light beacons. And that's all about just pure reaction time and getting up to speed as quickly as possible. And we've shifted from focusing on just like outright speed, slapping them as quick as possible to smooth and flowy with it. Because that's and, and it's funny, a lot of this came from the need to to try and stay with Jake on those first laps. Like we had to just kind of look at it as what can we do to somewhat close the gap and somewhat get that comfort level up on that opening lap? And I mean, I can't say that it's obviously worked because Jake still has the uh, the ability to pull out a ridiculous gap on that first lap, but it definitely seems to have led to a bit more comfort for the guys that do it. And they, it's just become a part of the routine now. So this is interesting. This is where Paul that's going to want to jump in because Paul talks about all the time about how Jake gets that that opening lap and he just wins these races. So, so Paul, I'm sure you want to ask about that a little bit. Well, I think, you know, I, I don't know how much of it is actually physical and mental and all that. I think it's just because he has a good handle on, I, I think it's a confidence thing more than anything. And yeah. Um, you know, most people would agree with that. He just feels very comfortable going fast in the first couple of laps. And those guys maybe are a little bit off and, and that's all it takes. Well, the back to, what are we talking about? Oh, I, it's funny, Sean, because when I walk by there and see these guys, what they're doing, it kind of reminds me of being in a Chuck E. Cheese a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? They've got like whack-a-mole. They've got all these uh, these games going on. And I'm like, wow. But you can see where it would actually work, especially like, to, you know, as, as a warm-up exercise, just to get your brain thinking straight before you jump on the bike and have to make other decisions. But one thing I wanted to know, like there, there's obviously the – Part of the the visual part that we see a lot of is, and I think you should be paid like a million dollars to rub down a sweaty Matthew Skulls, by the way, but we can talk about that for another time. But is the actual massage part of it, is that, is that more, is that a warm up thing or is that a post ride thing that kind of prevents soreness the following day? Uh, It's honestly a little column A, a little column B. It depends rider to rider as well. So Matthew's one that likes to get his forearms pumped up before he goes out and then we'll work him down and get it loose and then kind of repeat the process session to session. And after each session, he'll kind of tell me what's fatigued or what's hurting. And we'll, we'll make sure to work on that. And like you said, loosen it up for the next day and make sure we're minimizing that long-term fatigue factor. Um, and then like you guys touched on with the injuries, there's, there's a lot of trying to take the strain off of each of those injury points as best we can with the tools we have available. So um, with Matthew last year, that was a great example at Brainerd. He not only broke his wrist, but he also broke two ribs. And so that was just a means of like looking into, okay, what muscle groups can we work on? That's not going to aggravate the wrist, but what's also going to take some burden off of it. Um, So it's, I'd say it's a combination of those three, getting warm and then cooling down afterwards and managing the ridiculous laundry list of injuries these guys sometimes have. 
So you said you went to Cal State Fullerton. Is there like, a, is there a degree that you got that that encompasses all this, or do you have to go to separate schooling to be, I guess, a masseur? Or it, 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 I just explain that a little bit, like how if I don't want somebody to come in and take your job, but if some if there was somebody who wanted to do something similar, how do they go about doing that? So I've got my bachelor's degree in kinesiology with an emphasis in strength and conditioning. Outside of that, I've got and a minor in uh, sports psychology. And then outside of that, I have a few certifications. I've got a certification in soft tissue work. I've got a certification in mental performance coaching. Um, I've got my personal training certification. And then lastly, I've got my nutrition coaching certification. So there's a lot. Sorry about that. What was that? There's a lot to it. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't necessarily think you need every single piece of the puzzle there. It's that was just kind of gradual. I, I started with my personal training certification while I was getting my degree in kinesiology. And then over the past eight years or whatever it's been, I've just kind of pieced more and more things together as I kind of look deeper into deeper down the rabbit hole and saw like, Hey, I'd like to be able to do this for my athletes or, Oh, I want to do this for my athletes. So I definitely wasn't trying to do all of that at once. It was a, it was a gradual build. So Ethan, I, this is interesting. Yeah. I, I, I noticed this. I'll look at riders, especially riders that have been around a while and, or, you know, Jeremy McWilliams guys that have raced in other countries. And if you spend enough time with them and you're wearing a t-shirt or something, you'll sit there and you'll real, you'll look at them and you'll look at their forearms and see these vertical slashes on either one or both uh, forearms on the top or the bottom. And it's that telltale sign that they've had that compartment syndrome um, surgery that, that, that uh, Cam Peterson just had. And, you know, I remember in 2013, I think it was, it might've been 12, but it was when Josh Heron was going for the championship and in between rounds, he did the same thing Cam Peterson did. It was bothering him so much that he got it taken care of. So I know a lot of riders who have done it. I've heard of riders having it, doing it twice, but I, I'm pretty sure Matthew Skoltz has never done it. And I don't think he really believes in it. He even says, well, you know, it doesn't always work. And there are fewer riders these days, it seems like, that haven't done it than have. But I also think Josh Hayes has never, never had that surgery done. So with regard to to Matthew and what you know about him and his feelings about having that surgery. He struggles with compartment syndrome. He definitely has issues with it, but with, you know, again, without really giving away too much, if you don't want to, but kind of explain how you work with him and his philosophy on that whole thing, because Cam made Cam, when he was working for you, made the decision to do it. Matthew, who is working with you, I think has never had it done. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Um, And I think part of that comes down to just a a physiology difference. I don't think it was impact. I don't think it impacts Matthew quite as bad as it was impacting Cam. I mean, for Cam, it was, it was debilitating. And I think it was actually testing at button willow that made him say, screw it. I'm, I'm getting it done. And then we raced Daytona, I think 15 days after the operation. That was a fun one. Crazy. Uh, crazy I was counting the days because yeah, it was, it was a stressful one for sure. I remember sprinting for a bag of ice after during that red flag because he was just on the ragged edge of what he potentially could push through. But I don't know. Like you said, I don't know how these guys do it. They're absolute savages that make other athletes <laughs> look soft. Um, 
but yeah, with Matthew, it's just management at this point. Um, I don't, just based on what he's told me, I don't necessarily think it impacts him like it was impacting Cam and like it's impacted some of the other guys. So we, the massage guns, one of the things we'll try and do, um, another thing that we'll try and do before each round is, or before each day is get that first pump out of the way. That's something I've kind of learned from these guys is when they'll go train motocross, they'll, they'll go out and they always say like the first moto of the day, you get the worst arm pump after that. It's not as bad. So we try and get that out of the way without risk, without wasting a practice session, without wasting Q2 on Saturdays is just use tennis balls or use my forearm roller to get that pump out of the way. And then beyond that, we just try and manage it as best we can with our training, our nutrition, uh, our hydration protocol, just all the above. So I'm going to, I got to bring up a couple of situations here about some riders in the past. And, um, I'll give you an example. I don't know if you saw this on social media. Um, gosh, was it the year before? Yeah, it was the year before last, I think. So we saw all these shots of Garrett Gerloff with these is he was crazy, just absolutely fit as could be. And, you know, uh, ropey veins on his arms and he was just, he, he transformed himself kind of. And, and Paul and I had him on the podcast and he did admit he overdid it. He said he actually overtrained. And I know that happened one year with um, with uh, J.D. Beach as well. And it was ironically when J.D. and and Garrett were on the same team and it was kind of like a it was a little bit of an unwritten competition. Whoever won that year was probably going to end up racing in Superbike. And, you know, J.D. kind of overdid it himself that year. And he even said that. So. What what about these situations with these riders that maybe do too much? Do you have to, and these guys are so motivated, bring up a situation like like Matthew. I mean, again, he's such a specimen. So do you have to tell these guys to kind of back off a little bit sometimes? Oh, absolutely. I'm I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the main one of the main things I preach to every athlete I work with. Like you said, they I mean, they will beat their head against the cement wall until they pass out. They, they just go, 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 no stop, no quit and full credit to them. Like it, it's, it's great. And it helps have that motivation and have that commitment. But like you touched on it, it leads to overtraining. And the thing that I try and get across, the point I try and get across is that it's absolutely impossible to operate at hundred percent, a hundred percent of the time. Physiologically, we cannot do it. So we have to be planning this out and we have to be doing what's called periodization where we're making sure that we're training up until the optimal point and then we are backing off. And Mm. the way I try and sell this to them, which is, you know, I'm not just making this up. This is a real thing is you actually get what's called a super compensation effect if you do taper downs properly. So as your fatigue levels go down after your training, your performance levels will actually super compensate. So you could be showing up and performing physically at 105, 110%. So that's kind of one of those things I've tried to really emphasize to to sell these guys on it. Like you're not going to lose anything by not training for three, four days before the race. In fact, we're going to gain something. We're going to go in feeling fresher. We're going to go in with more potential and more in the tank. So I'm Mm. I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the biggest misconceptions and one of the biggest things we struggle with, with, these motivated athletes. Okay. I'm terrible in math, but I will tell you something. I just learned something from you that I didn't think was true. Um, and it was when people tell me they gave 110%, I always laugh and kind of say it's impossible. <laughs> you just said 110% is what happens sometimes. So they do, they do go over a hundred percent sometimes in their preparation then. 
Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, yeah, I feel like it's uh, the numbers are always it, it would be hard to quantify, but it definitely you definitely see a jump from that baseline performance level. Yeah, do a go too far. Well, here's another one, and I I run the risk of Cameron Bobia getting upset with me, but I think it's uh, enough years ago that maybe he doesn't remember it or, or he uh, is okay with it, and maybe doesn't have. <laughs> okay. This is, this is a slippery slope, but anyway, I'm going to tell you this uh, story. I don't remember what year it was. It wasn't in Superbike. It was back when he was racing in Daytona sport bike. And ironically, he, well, not that ironically, I guess, but they, he was racing against Jake Gagne. So, you know, a formidable foe at that time as as much as he's had, you know, since then, but there was one race. I don't, I don't remember where it was and I don't remember what the situation was, but it seems like it was a very hot, weekend at a track but i don't re- recall that it was barber but he had a race where he had a lot of trouble with some issues that were maybe his concentration i don't remember what it was but somebody in the team had said he's water drunk they said he drank too much water is have you ever heard of that yeah, if you're not replacing your electrolytes, you could flush basically all your electrolytes out, all your sodium, all your potassium, you sweat it all out, and then you're not replacing that. And it definitely, uh, it'll cause some issues for sure. It sounds so cheaper the- than drinking booze though. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. I don't think it's quite as enjoyable as booze, but you know, hey, I can't, I can't judge. Okay, so this idea that you have to hydrate you really do need, that's why there, I remember, I remember JD used to drink Pedialyte all the time. So he was drinking too much, just straight water. He needed to have something to replace these electrolytes because straight water doesn't do that. And he was, he was basically diluting his electrolytic system. Is it what it was? I mean, it's yeah, crazy more to less. think of it. Uh, okay. that, that's more or less accurate. And it's important to say that you can go too far in either direction. You can go and flush out all your electrolytes and then I, I hope Travis doesn't mind me saying this, but last year, Travis actually had basically electrolyte poisoning from overdoing the electrolytes and ended up with really bad vertigo and, and feeling really dizzy and really nauseous. I, I don't remember which round that was. Uh, might have been Laguna or Ridge, but you can definitely overdo it in the opposite direction. So it is a balancing act. Um, there's There's not necessarily a right or wrong answer exactly how much is good for everybody but it's something you have to play with and something you have to tweak yeah i mean as i recall that was this kind of the symptoms with cameron all those years ago is it was something like he felt dizzy or there was something that wasn't right about him it was affecting just his ability to react on the, the track he just didn't feel himself so um that's that's interesting that there's such a balance there that you have to deal with um now, now I need to know a couple of things about you. Uh, just because I grew up in Northern New York where I played a lot of pond hockey, but I did not play organized hockey. And when I went to play intramurals at the college I went to, it was a joke because I, you know, everybody was so much better than me. But, um, I will say, say this, Ethan, you're not a, you're not a very big guy. I don't mean that in the, in a bad way, but were you, what were you a defenseman? I mean, what did you play when you played hockey? No, I played centerman most of my college career. Oh. And then- I played center and left wing most of my club career. So I okay. just, I, I just was like you said, I'm five foot eight on good day and a buck 50 <laughs> when I was playing. So I was one of the smaller guys out there for sure. Um, just use my, my legs to my advantage, go as fast as possible. Try and not get obliterated. 
So you you grew up in Southern California, but you played hockey. So did, you obviously skated a lot. How did you do that? Just club hockey, honestly. Um, and I, I did a lot of a lot of rollerblade or a lot of roller hockey at my house. I would pretty much play that every single day, and then I was at the rink three to four times a week between games and practices. Yeah, I mean, I had I had some um, friends. You know, I grew up in New York, like I said, and I had friends from Long Island. They used to play a lot of roller hockey back down on Long Island. So among those hockey players too. But um, I, Paul, forgive me, but I got to ask him this: Ethan, did you have any Canadians on your team? We did. We had <laughs> uh, a couple of them, but most notably my buddy Brett Magnin, who actually went and played for Notre Dame's club hockey team, and it was the whole very typical a boot and long drawn out yeah. Canadian accent. So he, he fit the stereotype perfectly. I don't think we would have won many tournaments without our token Canadian on the team. Why the hell does a Canadian go to Southern California to play hockey? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know about that one. It's a, uh, it was questionable for sure. Especially we'd go up and show to tournaments up North and get our, get stomped by a uh, Canadian team. So there's a little <laughs> bit of like, come on, what are you doing down here? You, you this is what you could have been. Yeah, I mean, it was funny. We were about 20 miles over the border from Canada, so almost all of our team was was Canadian uh, guys, you know, and it was funny to listen to them talk about like that with the accents that you you say. Um, anyway, I just wanted to find that out. So um, so, so this is Ethan Chaplock with Southern Pride Performance Coaching. Uh, he has a website, southernprideperformance.com. Take a look at it. There's some cool photos of some of the riders in our paddock, Cam Peterson and and uh you know teague hobbs and and um it's it's a cool website it's got a lot of good information on it um i'm i'm fascinated that to find out you had mentioned about wyatt ferris um we need to get him back in the paddock again and we we like him a lot so i like that you're working with him and anxious to find out what might be going on but um you do you go to every one of our rounds yep sir i haven't missed a round since i started since i uh came to that first road atlanta round in 2020 is is there anything besides the absolute fitness of these athletes and that these guys are no joke when it comes to, you know, their specimens? Is there anything besides that in Moto America or in racing that you've seen that you're kind of in, in awe of or didn't realize or amazed about? Honestly, I think just how much the passion overrides the adversity. Like you'll and that's that's kind of what drew me into this sport and wanted me to and made it my mission to kind of make a more affordable solution so more people can have coaching is that these guys will spend every single penny they have pursuing this dream. They'll push through injuries that would make people want to lay in bed for the rest of their lives. And they'll just keep coming back and keep battling. And I think uh, that passion is definitely something that I, I resonate with and just wanted to play whatever small part and helping them push through that and helping them pursue it. because that's just that, that commitment and dedication is pretty awe-inspiring. You know, I wanted to mention that. I'm glad you brought that up again, because I wanted to say this being that you were a hockey player, um, you know, they're, they're like the standard bearers for being able to deal with pain. I mean, have a bunch of teeth knocked out or 13 stitches, they stitch him up and he played the next court on the next period or something. So you've seen a lot of tough guys in your sport, but you're, you're saying that the mo that motorcycle riders are at least on par, if not tougher, tougher, even than those guys, huh? Oh, tougher for sure. I, wow. I, every time I'm working on one of these guys, I'll continually tell them like, 
you make me look like I was playing golf or something out there. Uh, just the absurdity of these injuries and pushing through them and coming back. It's, it's mind boggling. Yeah, it really is. Well, did we leave anything on the table, Ethan, anything else you want to mention? Um, I mean, I feel like we could go deep on a bunch of these, but yeah. I, you know, I think we covered all the, uh, the basics as far as what we wanted to discuss. Uh, yeah. You know, we've had, we occasionally we've had people in our paddock and there've been some that have been approachable and some that haven't been, but I got to say, you're a very approachable person. I, you know, I got to know you just because heck you, you always have a smile on your face. So I can see how you attract, um, these riders to work with you because you seem to have a good outlook on life. Um, and uh, it's, it's good to see somebody like that in our paddock to add to that. So that's compliments to you. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, our, our paddock makes it easy. A lot of the paddocks basically become a second family to me. Like these guys are some of my best friends. Um, fortunate to fortunate to be a part of the paddock in any way, shape and form. That's for sure. Yeah. And we're glad to have you part of it. So I think we're going to wrap here. Um, so Paul, uh, any, any last words from you? No, I think it's obviously a, a bonus for you, you know, looking at it from the outside in, at least you're working with a bunch of guys who are friendly with each other. I think it might get a little difficult if you're, if you were, you know, working on two different guys that didn't like each other. And then, you know, all oh, you're playing favorites here, you're playing favorites there, but I think you're in a good position with the guys that you have that, uh, that, that there's none of that that happens. So that's also a helpful thing. I'm, I'm sure as far as your career goes. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, yeah, I've, I've, whether it's in the recovery aspect or the coaching aspect, I've worked with a good amount of people in the paddock. Um, Unfortunately, that just never seems to kind of bleed through into the work I'm doing as far as any animosity or anything like that. Right. That's great. All right. Well, we're going to wrap here, but I want to just say we we alluded to it in the beginning of the podcast, but we'll be heading to Ridge Motorsports Park in Shelton, Washington. We're going to do our West Coast Swing. Laguna Seca will be coming up after that. So you fans out there on the West Coast, we're coming your way. And to all the uh, Revit Twins Cup riders, a shout out to them because they didn't race it around in Road America. And a lot of uh, fans were thinking, well, where are they? Well, they're going to be in action. They're going to get on their horses and they're going to go way out to the Pacific Northwest and we'll see them in action again um, with a full round out there. And also we've got uh, the, um, the, why I almost said steel commander stock 1000, but it's the hooligan, the super hooligan class, which is really fun. And there's a couple interesting bikes that have been added to that mix as well. This time that we haven't seen before, there's going to be the energic, uh, battery powered by electric bike that, um, uh, uh, Stefano Mesa rides, but also we've got a couple other ones that are interesting. I I've seen the list and there's a couple Suzuki SV 1000s that are racing there. So again, you know, our, classes keep growing with um various riders and various uh types of motorcycles so uh be it be there at the ridge to see it and if you can't be there then definitely subscribe to moto america live plus and go on our live timing on our weekends and uh you know keep following us we're growing rapidly these days and uh we're happy that our fans are are enjoying it and we're happy to have people like ethan and our our paddock that have also adopted the what we do in moto america so Thanks a lot, Ethan, again, and, and uh, we'll be on the podcast next week with another guest.